Tulian Chuvidin, a unique name, maybe a name you've heard before, a name, though, that has baggage with it. Tulian Chuvidin is not just a unique name, not a name about some potential, not a name about a huge legacy left for the faith, but a name that is associated with a dramatic tragedy. A dramatic tragedy is defined by Merriam-Webster as a drama or literary work in which the main character is brought to ruin or suffers extreme sorrow, especially as a consequence of a tragic flaw, moral weakness, or an inability to cope with unfavorable circumstances. And really, in our world, we see dramatic tragedies everywhere in books, in TV, in movies, in plays, dramatic tragedies are brought to the forefront. From Julius Caesar to Breaking Bad, tragedies are in our world. But the sad part is it's not just in entertainment or in media that we see dramatic tragedies. Sometimes they play out on the stage of real life, and it's not actors who take off a costume and makeup and go home to their normal lives, but it's people who go home broken because of these events. Well, Tulian Chuvidin had that happen. See, his real name is William Graham Tulian Chuvidin. William Graham, maybe that speaks to you, maybe that stands out. His grandpa was Billy Graham. And his middle name, Tulian, unique, it's based off the church father, Tertullian. So this man had some of the greats of Christianity in his name. After he came to Christ, five years later, he had a Master of Divinity degree, and he was pastoring a church in Florida. And Tulian was gifted, he was charismatic, and he blew up. He was writing books, he was touring the world preaching, he was a conference keynote speaker. But Tulian, as we said, it was a dramatic tragedy. He had a flaw. He had a sin that was small at first, but it was never addressed. It was brushed under the rug. It was hidden because this man had so much potential. And all of a sudden, his platform outgrew his character, and it was like a ticking time bomb. It was going to go off at some point. Well, in 2015, that went off when it was found out that he was unfaithful to his wife. He had a mistress. He stepped down from his church. Being a Presbyterian, the governing board, the presbytery, said he was unfit for ministry. Eight months later, he joined the staff of Willow Creek Church, who also has an interesting history now. And then they found out that he had had a second extramarital affair, and he was fired. So the downfall of Tertullian is he lost his ministry, his reputation was tarnished, and everything that he had worked for had this dark cloud over it. The story of Tulian is sad, it's depressing, and I don't bring it up to shame him or anything. I actually Googled him this week to see what he was up to, and he is a Christian, he's believing in God's grace and redemption, and praise God for that. But unfortunately, that story isn't isolated. It's been all too common to hear about pastors, about church leaders falling in their positions, having some serious moral flaw, some serious problem that comes out in a big public way. Just think of some of the names in the last couple of years. Bill Hybels, Perry Noble, Ravi Zacharias, Mark Driscoll. More and more are coming out. 
And this should anger us as Christians. We should be upset by this. People leading the church, people that have such an influence and a platform, but deep down inside living a double life or not living that out faithfully, it should make us upset. But I think it also makes us a little bit fearful. We raise an eye then at church leaders and pastors because no one's beyond sin. We haven't reached sinless perfection. We won't until the new heavens and the new earth. So that could still happen today. And so we need to know, how do we know if this is going to happen? How can we see our leaders and our pastors and know that they are truly living this out? Jesus is going to tell us today in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. We don't want to be duped. We don't want to feel the pain that this can cause. But while Jesus is focusing in on leaders, on teachers, it also makes us examine our own lives. Where's our standing with God? And do we contribute to this problem that seems to be happening of pastoral failure? As you're turning there in your Bibles, we are nearing the end of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. And all of it has been leading up to this point. It's the big climax, the call to action. Jesus is saying, which way will you choose? He ends with a bunch of pairs. There's two roads, there's two gates, there's two fruits, there's two declarations, there's two houses, and eventually there is two destinations. Will you choose the narrow way that Jesus has been preaching about? He's been correcting the rebels in the world. He's been correcting the religious elites in the world to teach his disciples what it truly means to follow him, and to have righteousness. Will you choose that way? Will Jesus welcome you? Are you building your house upon the rock? Will your destination be eternity with God? Or are you going the wide way, the easy way, the way where Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you, a house built on sand, an eternity away from God in hell? Which will you choose? And so it's in this context that Jesus brings up an interesting illustration. He puts on his botanist hat, the study of plants, and he tells us about two bushes, two fruits, and two trees. So that's what we're going to examine here today. In our passage in verse 15, it starts off with a bold assumption. Jesus comes to us with a bold assumption. Verse 15 says this. It says, beware of false prophets. So right away, Jesus makes this claim that we got to unpack a little bit. And his assumption here is not all prophets are true, and you can violate the truth. See, all throughout the Old Testament, God warned his people about false prophets. And prophets were important. They were God's messengers to his people. They spoke for God. They said, thus says the Lord. There's a lot of authority that comes when you say, God says this. And knowing human nature, guess what? Sometimes we get a power trip. We want some authority. And so false people would come and say, I'm speaking for God. And so all throughout the Old Testament, there's this warning about these false prophets. Now, today, we don't have prophets making future predictions because God's given us all the revelation we need in his word. But leaders... Pastors, teachers like myself, we are to be messengers for God. We're to preach the message of the Bible. And the sad reality is, 
there can be false leaders, false teachers, false prophets. The other assumption in here is that truth can be violated, and this flies in the face of our world today, because Jesus means there is objective truth that we can actually know. You know, if truth was impossible for us to know, if we were just wandering around in the dark trying to find it, how could we ever say somebody is a false teacher? How could we even claim that? How do we know? And so for Jesus, there's no my truth, your truth, their truth, our truth. There's the truth. And the danger is somebody can teach us something else. So when we read this, it's sobering. It's a little scary. And Jesus continues on with a warning. Verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So they're deceptive. They're tricky. They look the part. They're God-fearing. They check all the boxes. But inwardly, there's something much different. And he uses this illustration of sheep and wolves. Now, I think you get this. If not, flip on the Discovery Channel or something. But sheep, they're pretty helpless. They're in danger. And wolves, they can be pretty aggressive. So it's dangerous to be in this scenario. False prophets, bad pastors, they are a danger to God's people. Now, this probably seems like common sense. Duh. There's false teachers. There's false prophets. There's false pastors out there. We get that. We've seen that. But the million-dollar question is, how do we know? How do we know? How can we prevent from being duped by this? And so Jesus spends the next four verses telling us. Verse 16 says, You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So Jesus switches illustrations here, and this is where we get into the botany of everything. You will know them by their fruits. You know, to the casual observer, I'm saying this from my experience, a normie, a noob, whatever you want to call me, I'm not a tree expert. When I'm driving by a tree on the road, when I'm walking by one, they generally look the same. Now, of course, I'm not going to confuse a weeping willow with a pine tree, all right? That's obvious. But for the most trees, they kind of look similar. I would confuse them. And Jesus brings up an illustration that his people would know well. See, back then, there was a thorn bush that had these little blackberries that looked just like grapes. And so you could walk by it, or from a distance, you'd say, hey, that looks like a, that looks like a grape bush. And you might think that. You might pluck the grapes, but upon further inspection, and especially if somebody made wine with those things, you would know pretty quick that those weren't grapes. It would be disgusting tasting. It would be horrible wine. You would know from experience and examination, this isn't it. And the same goes for figs. Back then, there was a thistle that sprouted this little flower, kind of looked like a fig, but if you were to taste that thing, you would be sorry the real character of that bush would be revealed. And so what Jesus is saying is sometimes we can get confused. It can look the part. It can check the boxes. It can look like it has a little sheep coating on it. 
but eventually by what it produces, the true character, the true nature, the true identity will be revealed. It will be showcased. So again, this makes sense. Okay, we'll see who are legitimate, who are true by what they produce, by the fruit that they produce. But the real question then that we have to ask, and this is where we go off, this is where we make a mistake, and it leads to huge disastrous results. What is good fruit? What fruit are we looking for? We might have different thoughts on what the good fruit truly is. So what is Jesus going to say good fruit is? The fruit Jesus looks for in this passage, we see two of them. One we see in the context, and one Jesus tells us explicitly. So one of the good fruits that Jesus is looking for in true faithful messengers or teachers is a good fruit of content, true content. Do they preach the message of the Bible? Again, all throughout the history of the Old Testament, all the way through today, false teachers don't like to teach the message of the Bible. Specifically, they like to skirt around the issue of God's judgment, that we are sinners, that naturally we deserve eternity apart from God, which is hell. That's a confrontational message. That's not a bestseller. You can't market and publish a bunch of books if that is your main takeaway, or at least it's harder to. And so we see in this passage, it's no coincidence that Jesus' teaching about false teachers comes immediately after his teaching about the narrow gates that Pastor MJ preached last week. That's a confrontational message. That's not the necessary feel-good thing that you might get. It confronts us. It says, look, we are by nature headed towards hell, enemies of God. There's only one thing we can do. It's nothing you can do. You can put your faith in Christ, and that will save you. He is the one exclusive way. False teachers don't like to go there. And we don't need to take a huge survey of history or dust off the history books to see this. Look around you today at some of the Christian teaching. You know, Jesus is just one leader among many. All roads lead to God. They widen that narrow road to make everyone on it going to heaven. Or we blur the roads a little bit. We say, well, you can become a Christian, but it costs nothing. There's no obedience required. You don't really need to submit to God. You know, as long as you prayed this prayer when you were six and throughout the rest of your life, there was zero evidence of it. You're fine. You're good. God made you the way you were supposed to be. It's comfortable. Just enjoy it and rest. There's kernels of truth in that, but if that is the message, that isn't the full message of Scripture. We're called to obey and submit to the Lord as well. And so this is super practical for us today. You know, if you're in a church if you read a Christian book, if you're listening to a podcast where they say something about Jesus being one among many ways to God that never, ever, ever confront us with our sin, run out of there and take as many people as you can. <laughs> Throw the book down, turn the podcast off, leave it a one-star rating. That is not the truth, and that will distract people. Now, this doesn't mean that every single sermon from a church or every Christian book needs to be full fire and brimstone, because that's overemphasizing that in Scripture. But if you never, ever hear that, if you're never confronted with sin, 
That's a huge red flag. So that is the good fruit of a teacher, of a leader, of a pastor. They preach the biblical message. But I also said we need to examine ourselves when thinking about this. And so I say you because I am a teacher. So for you out there, what is the content of your faith? As a Christian, you should also have good fruits. And the good fruits for Christians is having a true belief in the Bible. Do you believe that all of this is God's word to us and is our authority in our world? Or do you just pick and choose little pieces like a buffet line that you like the most and some you want to leave off? It's hard. You know, do we truly believe that God is the Lord of our finances, has given us all that we have, and he should have some ability to control that? Do we truly believe that all people are sinners and need to hear the gospel message? Even your neighbor that's so sweet, that does so many great things, even your coworker that puts a lot of Christians to shame by how they live their life, they need the gospel, and if they don't have it, guess what? They're not going to be with God in eternity. And it might be your job to tell them about it. Do we believe in these things? What is the content of your faith? So that's one of the good fruits is for a teacher, true content. For everyone, do we believe the true content of Scripture? The other good fruit that Jesus looks for is the fruit of character. And that's where he brings up this illustration of trees. He puts it both positively and negatively to really drill it home for us. Verse 17 says, A healthy tree bears good fruit. A diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree can't produce bad fruit. A diseased tree can't produce good fruit. And so on and so on. Really drilling home this message that the other good fruit God looks for is good character. And I want you in your mind to think of this illustration with me, because I would say as conservative evangelical Christians, we really value education. It's good. A lot of you know so much about the Bible. And so I think that we have less of a harm of being falling for false teaching or being duped by that. I think it's much more deceptive and much easier for us to fall into the trap of thinking that a character flaw or a character quality is a good fruit when Jesus has a different idea of what good fruit is. So, think of wintertime. I know we're approaching, crisp, uh, we're approaching summer right now. Think of wintertime when there's snow on the ground, when it's chilly. You might have just worn a t-shirt for the first time this year and see how pale your skin is. You're looking forward to getting some rays, getting a little tan. But think about when you're bundled up in a coat, when it's cold, when there's snow on the ground. And in most of our living rooms, there's a Christmas tree, right? And a Christmas tree is beautiful. I got a picture of one up there for you. This is a weird little quirk of mine, but I like Christmas trees a lot. I like going to the festival of trees. I like looking up the professional decorators Christmas trees, you know, the Chip and Joanna Gaines version or whatever it is. Christmas trees, and you look on that and it's a beautiful tree. Usually on top it has a star or an angel or some sort of religious symbol. But as you're looking at this picture, you see these beautiful lights, you see tinsel, you see ornaments, you see ribbons just drawing attention to this tree. And some trees, they have the fake snow, the flocking that kind of glitters, you know, and some fake fruits even. I love that fake snow, that flocking. It gets everywhere. I hate it cleaning it up, but I love it on the Christmas tree. Gives it this really natural, organic look like it was just transported from a beautiful forest into your living room. 
And for all the glitz and the glam, it really hides the fact of the matter. A Christmas tree is a corpse. It's dead. If you looked a little bit lower, you would see it's not connected to any source of life. It's cut off from the roots. And you need to water this thing a little bit or else it becomes really, really dead. And eventually, what is the destination of Christmas trees? Well, some of us have fake ones that are modeled off of dead Christmas trees. <laughs> and so they go back into a box until we think they're out of style or ugly or whatever, and then we throw them to the garbage. If it was a natural tree, you cut it up, and eventually it's burned, or most likely. Thrown in the garbage or burned. That's the destination of these trees. And I bring this up because there are some teachers, some leaders who are Christmas tree leaders. We look at them, we see the glitz and the glam, we see the beauty, and we think these are the good fruits that Jesus is talking about. We define good fruits by business success, by personal effectiveness. Look at how influential they are. Look at how charismatic they are. They're such a gifted communicator. Look at how many people follow them on their Facebook, their Instagram, their TikTok, their YouTube, their Gab, whatever social media platform you follow. Look at that effectiveness that they have. And so we see this fruit, but we fail to recognize that just below there, they might not be connected to the source of life. They not, might not be rooted in their relationship with God. And if that's the case, it's a ticking time bomb like Tulian. It's only a matter of time. And you have to ask yourself, do we ever play into this? Do we create this environment? You know, do we grandstand the people that seem to draw the largest crowds? And then the Christian marketing corporations give them books because guess what? They'll sell and make money. And then we make them keynote speakers because guess what? They'll sell tickets and make money. And then we give them their own ministry name and then they're too big to fail. I mean, the epitome of this is Ravi Zacharias, world-renowned apologist, Christian philosopher. He went all over the world debating atheists, and he had a lot of good stuff. And guess what? A lot of his content was accurate. But we didn't really look. He kind of swept under the rug. He hid where his roots were, and they weren't very deep. He became too big to fail, and it all came crashing down right after he passed away. But it's not just Christian leaders that can be Christmas tree Christians. All of us can be tr Christmas tree Christians. We need to appear godly. We need to manage our image. We love that, uh, that quote. I'm going to mess it up here, but it's like, the person whose Bible is falling apart, their life is not. Right? As long as our Bible looks like it's really messed up and we run it over with a car and all that, then our lives must be good to other people. <laughs> We like that. We need to seem the most educated, have the most deep, theologically rich responses when someone asks us questions, have the most ornate Shakespearean prayers when we're asked to pray, seem like we are a solid rock of faith, and never, ever express if we have some doubt or some pain or something that we're actually struggling with when it comes to the Christian faith. We can try to decorate our lives with all of these ornaments, but really, the thing that matters most is, do we have roots, or are we just the dead Christmas tree? So what is then the good fruit of character that Jesus looks for? 
Well, the good fruits of character we've seen all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. It's not necessarily how much success we have as we define in our world, but who we are. He starts off with the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, meaning you're totally dependent on God. We don't come strutting up to God and say, look at how much I bring to the table. We realize we're spiritually bankrupt. It's the meekness, it's the gentleness, the forgiveness, the courage to speak truth. These are the fruits, the good fruits, that Jesus looks for in our lives. And so instead of being Christmas tree Christians, we need to be shepherd's tree Christians. Shepherd's tree. Here's a picture of a shepherd's tree. They're found in the plains in Africa. Now, if you look at a shepherd's tree, not really much to write home about, right? It's not the most beautiful looking. It looks kind of dry. It looks pretty typical. It might not even produce edible fruits that we would love to taste and touch and all of that. But here's the reality about shepherd's tree. They have the deepest roots out of any tree in the world, over 230 feet deep. They are more connected to the nutrients, to the source of life, than any other tree out there, especially the Christmas tree. And so what Jesus is calling us to, what he's telling us here, is that we need to have leaders and be people ourselves who are deeply rooted in our life with God, in our relationship with God, deeply rooted in who he says we are. And if we are that way, fruit's going to happen. Notice in here, Jesus doesn't tell us, manufacture your own fruit. Come up with some crazy GMO chemical compound that creates these abnormal fruits. He doesn't tell us that. He says that fruit just happens from the identity of the tree. And this kind of perplexes us this morning. Because we live in a self-help culture, a self-improvement culture, there's so many different books in self-help and self-improvement, and I'm not knocking that entirely. Some of those are pretty good resources. But the way we approach most deficiencies in our life and most problems is we say, if I have enough knowledge and I have enough willpower, then I can overcome. Knowledge and willpower. And so when we see some deficiency, we want to run to the right program, the right book, the right curriculum, the right practice, and just double down, white knuckle, say, we will make this happen. But Jesus doesn't describe this good fruit that way. He says, really, it comes from our identity. It just happens. If we're a healthy tree, if we've put our faith in Jesus Christ, if we are trying day by day and through the power of the Holy Spirit to let that affect how we live our lives, there's going to be good fruit. And if we haven't put our faith in Christ, or if we did that one time and we never think about it, we never try to live that out, it's just sequestered off in our mind, there's not going to be the best fruit that comes out of that situation. We need to let our identity and who we are as Christians permeate, affect every single aspect of our lives. The Holy Spirit transform us in that way. And so what do we do? That might seem like an ironic question after what I just said. What do we do? What's the action step of learning about fruit that we don't produce ourselves or we don't manufacture ourselves? Well, we need to be deepened or deepen our roots with God, deepen our roots with him, with our relationship with him. You know, if you've grown up in church very long, you've probably heard the phrase, your relationship with God, over and over and over. And I think for a lot of us, if we're honest, 
we really narrow a relationship with God to the 10 minutes I read my Bible, asking God for help when I'm struggling, and trying to have somewhat good church attendance. That's what a relationship with God is and looks like. But that's so shallow. That's so little of what it really truly is. We know that relationship is the core of the cosmos, that God created the entire world. But before he did that, he existed as one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in relationship. And guess what? He created all of us to live on earth with him in relationship. And guess what? If you look at Revelation at the end of time in the new heavens and the new earth, we will live with God in relationship. That's what this was made for. The problem is because we sinned, because we've said we want to be our own gods, we're going to go our own way. We're not going to live in relationship with you, God. I'm doing my own thing. That's called sin. We've sinned. We've disobeyed God. And the consequence of that is being cut off from the source of life, from God himself. That's what hell is. And so we're stuck in that. We can't do anything to change that. And God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live in our place, fully God, fully man. He lived a perfect life. And he died on the cross, taking our punishment on himself. And here's the amazing thing. He says, if you put your faith, your belief, your trust, your hope for life in my work, in the fact that you can't self-improve yourself, but in my work, you can have eternal life. Jesus' plan of salvation, the rescue mission of God, is not an end in itself. It's a means so our relationship with God can be restored. And so if we say a relationship with God is just a little devo in the morning, when we're frustrated praying, and then coming to church or attending things, we're missing it. Because our whole life, we should be in communion with God. That's what it means to have a rooted faith, realizing that the Christian life is living life with God. And that doesn't mean you have to pray every single second of every single day. You probably need to sleep. You probably need to eat. You got to do other things. But it's being aware of your identity and living that out in whatever context you're in. So to make this a little more concrete, to make this a little more specific, I challenge you to do something that I've done before, and it's led to huge dividends in my life. So I want you to take out your phone. I know that's crazy to bring that up, take out your phone. People are already jumping the gun on that a minute ago. But take out your phone and set three alarms on your phone, okay? So this is what I want you to do. If you don't have your phone, you can write it down. But set one for the morning when you might start your day or when you can just have a moment. Set an alarm for then. Set one for the middle of the day. Maybe it's your lunch hour. Maybe it's the time you can step away for a minute. And then set one for the end of the day. And really, these are just times to remind you to pause. Just pause. Step away from the task. It doesn't have to be a huge time. It can be just a couple minutes. And ask God, Lord, please help me to remember that my life is with you. Help me to live out my identity that you've given me. That's all. Remember that. Because if you're like me, you start your day and your to-do list runs at you like a stampede of elephants. And it's so easy just to get flattened by it. And it's so easy to maybe pray a prayer at breakfast, maybe lunch, maybe dinner, and just forget the rest of your waking hours, who you truly are, what you're called to do, what you're doing, and that you're living life with God. He is present through the power of his Holy Spirit in your life if you believe in Christ. 
And so this is a great way to bring that awareness, to deepen our roots of what's true about us and what's true of God, and then the fruit will be produced in our lives. It is a danger and it is a fear sometimes that the leaders, that the pastors, that other Christians might not be legit. And that is one that's founded in things that have happened in the past, in history. But there are many, many pastors and leaders and teachers who are faithful, who do have the good fruit that Jesus looks for in preaching the content of the Bible and having a character that shows that same thing. Some of them aren't going to be the keynote speakers at conferences. Some of them aren't going to have book deals or podcasts or huge platforms, but they are faithful, and they are there. One pastor who has a little platform that I look up to is named Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson. Some only know him as the man who wrote the message, and there was controversy about that, and they just kind of write him off. But the majority of his life's work was writing about the pastoral calling, the pastoral ministry. And he was so countercultural. He did not chase celebrity. He said to pastor somebody, I need to know their name. And so he told his church, if it ever grows beyond 500 people, we're going to plant because I can't know everyone's name if it's above 500. And that's what they did. He viewed pastors in his own city there in Maryland where he pastored for 29 years, not as competitors, not as people that threatened him, but as teammates. He worked together with them. He pursued these qualities of being somewhat obscure, not chasing celebrity, of doing life with people, of not bragging in how busy he really was. And what's amazing about Eugene Peterson, I read an interview uh, when he passed away several years ago. Many people wrote about the impact he made. And one Christian marketer said, you know, I'm so grateful Peterson was born when he was, because he would never get published today. He doesn't have a megachurch. He doesn't have any sort of online following. He's not trying to raise a fan base. It would be a bad financial decision. He would never be out there. We would never have heard of him. But Peterson was a faithful man who showed that good fruit and was an encouragement to thousands of pastors all throughout the world. And so what I want to tell you today is it is so, so important to be at a faithful church of faithful leaders. And it's such a blessing when you're in that. It's so, so good. But what's even more of a blessing if you yourself are rooted in who you are in Christ. If you try to be a shepherd's tree Christian and not a Christmas tree Christian, because it will affect your entire life. Times of fear, times of anxiety, times of turmoil. You will still feel some of that, but you'll have more of a peace as you go through it. Dare I say you may even have more joy and contentment in life when you're rooted in your relationship with God. So remember, when Jesus talks about fruits, what the good fruits are that he looks for, the content of our faith and the character of who we are. Remember, we don't produce those. It's found in our identity and who we are rooted in. So reject being a Christmas tree Christian and be the shepherd's tree. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this really practical lesson, Lord. And Lord, uh, we thank you for your grace and how you really have transformed each and every one of us. How we are sinners, we can't change our lives, we can't make ourselves righteous or better. It's through your work and through the Holy Spirit. I pray for myself, for the other pastors, for the leaders, 
for everyone here this morning and listening online, that we'd be more rooted in our faith. May our identity transform how we live and the fruit that we produce. We thankful for your faith. We thank you for your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.